Well, hello and welcome back for another episode of your favorite weekly regenerative ag podcast, Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Grassroots Carbon. No matter where you are within the regenerative ag, a Grassroots Carbon contract can give you what you need to take your ranching operation to the next level. There's zero upfront cost and Grassroots Carbon has a very favorable profit sharing arrangement with folks just like you. You'll maintain full control of your ranch and how you care for your land. In 2022, the average carbon price was right at $19 a ton. And for 2023, Grassroots Carbon is estimating the price will be over $26. Now listen, there's a lot of carbon storage companies starting up, but very few have actually issued payments to producers. And Grassroots Carbon was one of the first. The best thing about Grassroots Carbon is that when, not if, the price of carbon skyrockets, you'll get more money. Your payments aren't fixed on a per acre basis. They are based on per ton stored. So when the price of carbon goes up, you get more money. But what about wildfires, floods, and drought? Well, Grassroots took that into account. And if you're following good grazing management practices, such as frequent cattle moves and making sure your grass has the appropriate rest, you have nothing to worry about. When you're ready to join the carbon gold rush and take your ranching operation to the next level, just go to grassrootscarbon.com reboot or click the link in the description to start your journey today. Last week's Spotify poll question was, do you think small businesses and farmers are adequately represented in the legislative system? And not surprisingly, every single response was negative. I wish things were different, but they aren't. Don't forget to check out this week's poll and Q&A on Spotify. Speaking of Spotify, did you know that I offer a subscription on Spotify? For just a few bucks a month, you'll get a subscriber-only feed without ads. You can subscribe on Spotify on my show page or find a link at the bottom in the episode description. Later on this week, I'll be in Stillwater, Oklahoma to take the Essentials of Regenerative Ranching course put on by Noble Research Institute. If you're interested and would like to know more, click the link in the description to see where the rest of the upcoming Essentials of Regenerative Ranching courses are and sign up today. Support for this episode also provided by Wild Ass Soap Company. We all know how hot it's been lately, and it's especially been humid down here in the Red Hills, which means I sweat a lot. No one likes being stinky, and that's why I love my Wild Ass Soap. Their soap powers the funk right off your skin, leaving you fresh and clean. I also use Wild Ass Soap Company's charcoal-based deodorant, and my shirts don't smell like a high school locker room anymore. And when I want to smell my very best, I use some body booze from Wild Ass. They've got tons of great scents and smells, so there's sure to be something that'll make your nose happy. Check them out at wildassoaps.com or click the link in the description, and don't forget to use the code REBOOT for 10% off your order at checkout. Just a couple more things and I'll shut up and we'll get on with it. Next week, I'll be up in Iuka, Kansas for the soil health event put on by Wind Biologics. And don't forget that I'll be out at Lakin at the Bottom Line Conference the 24th and 25th of August. A great place to find out about all upcoming regenerative ag conferences, meetings, soil health events, coffee shop talks, and field days. Click the Linktree link down in the show description and scroll down to Soil Health Events Calendar. That's it. I'll shut up. And now you guys enjoy episode 127 with Henry Arrowwood. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I seem to have less internet problems 20 miles from town than people do in town or people do back east. I wonder, I wonder why that is. Are you on Starlink? No, um, I'm actually on a local telco and I have, I got fiber to my house like three or four years ago. So I have a symmetrical 100 up, 100 down connection. Well, that's great for you. My, so here's my, my one hypothesis. I think that it's uh, like I'm in an office space right now with probably like 30 people that are trying to to use the Wi-Fi. And so it's probably also a bandwidth constraint. Um, but uh, yeah, you that being here. So right now I'm in uh, I'm in Minneapolis and uh, I'm right by like the, the twin stadium target field, like right in the heart of Minneapolis. And I thought, you know, the Wi-Fi would be great here, but uh, we've, we've had some troubles. <laughs> so Minneapolis, interesting. I, I was going to ask, but uh, I'm glad that came out anyway. So before I screw it up, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce your last name. Arrowwood. Arrowwood. Okay. I, that's what I figured it was. Usually it's, you know, there's two W's, but I just, I just want to make sure. So we're here today with Henry Arrowwood and your company is called FarmShare. So tell us a little bit about FarmShare. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Brian, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Love a lot of, you know, the content that you're putting out. Um, so thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, so FarmShare, um, we're a technology company. We are building a comprehensive platform to empower small ag producers in the modern marketplace. So anything from market access through our marketplace to ERP, CRM, inventory management, marketing support, accounting support, we want to build all of the tools and services that a small ag producer in this country requires to be successful and compete against industrial agriculture. Okay. Uh, real quick, for those of us that don't speak corporate, what, what is ERP sure. and CRM? Yeah. Yeah. So CRM is customer relationship management. Um, and so that's, you know, we want to build a, a, a tool for, for farms, ranches to successfully uh, track their, their relationships uh, with their, their, their customers, whether it be a retailer, whether it be a restaurant, whether it be a consumer, uh, we want to, we're building a tool. Uh, we already have tools, but we're continuing to optimize those tools that help our uh, producers stay on top of those relationships um, and manage them to the best of their ability. And then ERP is enterprise resource planning. Um, so, you know, this is uh, a set of software tools that help with, um, you know, automating and management any part of their core business. Um, so whether it be, um, you know, uh, accounts payable, accounts billable, um, resources, um, whether it be payroll, um, really serving as the, the digital backbone for a small business uh, to thrive. So like offloading a lot of those office tasks that most of us probably hate doing. Yes. Okay. Hundred percent. Yeah, we really see our opportunity, Brian, as being that sort of co-pilot for a small farm or ranch, uh, in helping to offload a lot of the monotony uh, and uh, administration that you know probably seems burdensome and boring 
to a lot of uh, ranchers and uh, and farmers. Um, I think it's no secret that agriculture as an industry hasn't been as technologically developed as sort of adjacent industries um, and is actually more pronounced in this country than it is in others. Um, You know, just talking with other people in sort of the ag tech field, you know, the the U.S. as an industry um, is years behind sort of the, the digitization of agriculture in the UK, Australia. Um, and so a lot of what's done still on pen and paper today, we think we can bring efficiencies to, to really maximize time and contributions to, you know, small farms and ranches. Okay. I made a couple of notes. We'll come back to that. You know, on the subject of record keeping, you know, we're, I, I don't know, I, I hesitate to say 20 years into the digital reg, digital revolution, but we kind of are. You know, I, I was in the military and I remember this big push, you know, in the early 2000s, like, oh, we're going to go paperless. Oh, we've got this Paperwork Reduction Act. It seemed to actually increase the amount of paper that was used, but that that's beside <laughs> the point. And when I got out of the Navy in 2006, you know, I was excited about the prospect of bringing technology back to ranching. And ever since then, I'm still writing shit on legal pads. I haven't, Mm. there's, there's, there's dozens of apps out there, Mm -hmm. but for some reason, I, I'm still taking a lot of notes on a legal pad. A lot of those eventually get, you know, put into like cattle max or, or in the pasture map, but like, when I'm going through and pairing up calves, it's a lot easier for me to do that on a legal pad. I can write down a number, I can write down another sure. number, and I can write down a description. And sure. I can do that real easy on a legal pad, but it's a lot harder for me to pull out my phone and try to type all that shit in while I'm driving through the pasture staring at a cow. So yep. there, I, it, there's still some places where, you know, and there's guys that still love their little red books, their little red calving books that they get at the yep. cattlemen's conference in December or January, and they keep track of all their crap for the year and that. So, like, understanding the data that ranchers want to keep, you know, there's no two of us that want to keep the same data. No two of us are going to say the same data is important, I'm pretty sure. Um, You know, there's going to be a group of guys that are always going to want to look at one group of metrics, but that's probably production commodity side anyway. So, um, you also said that ag isn't as tech developed as other adjacent industries. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that and, you know, kind of rapidly went through in my head. Okay. We've got, we've got tractors that'll drive themselves with centimeter precision. Sure. There's drone grain carts now that'll, you know, come to the combine, fill up, then take it back to the truck or whatever without an operator. And that's cool. There's drones that'll go out and spray crops. No guy on the ground can control more than one drone. I think Mm -hmm. those are cool. But the technology solutions that we see are primarily, you know, they're going to be big profit centers yep. for big companies because technology is expensive. It's expensive to develop and it's expensive to deploy and it's expensive to buy. And, you know, there's no doubt that centimeter precision agriculture, centimeter precision farming saves fuel, saves chemicals and saves time. There's no doubt about that. But it's when it comes to adapting technology to a grazing system, 
like mine, and I, and I get this isn't what you're talking about, but this is kind of where, where I'm hung up right now, is you know, we talk about adapting technologies to a grazing system. Okay, you can put all my records on a, on a laptop or on a, on a handheld device so I don't have to use legal pads. We can put a collar on a cow so we don't have to go move polywire every day, right? But and at the end of the day, all of these technologies, whether we're talking about you know technologies in farming or just a simple technology of a diesel engine, all these technologies are just designed to reduce the labor component or the physical labor component, and you know, or, or what what am I looking for? Like the office the office work type part of it, right? You mm-hmm. know, trying to trying to automate some of the office work type part of it. And yeah, you know, some of these tools can give us back minutes and hours in the day. I, I don't know. I, I guess that's kind of where I got. I, I think the technology is great when it helps us advance, when it helps us save resources. But if we're going to, like, it, it's great we can farm with centimeter precision. And we can till with centimeter precision and apply chemicals with centimeter precision. But is that, is that a bullseye that we're hitting? That's not even the right target. Yeah, no, a lot of great points there, Brian. Um, First of all, I still love my legal pad too. So I just want to get that straight. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think um, first of all, talking about some of the, you know, automation of, uh, you know, industrial farm equipment, obviously, you know, really cool stuff that's happening there. Um, No, no, no doubt that there's technological innovations happening on that front. Where I see more of a void is in software um, supporting small, small ag, right? We're not focused on like, to, to be clear, like my company is not focused on industrial agriculture. We're not focused on supporting uh, big ag. Um, we are focused on building technology solutions, to your point, that make advancements for small ag producers, right? That's what we're trying to do. We really look at, you know, the the, the, the arc of the curve of, of agriculture, right? With uh, sort of the, the first way being very traditional agriculture, uh, at the dawn of the agricultural revolution. And then, you know, this was a very harmonious way of, you know, working with the land. Uh, then there came the industrial revolution and we formed this much more industrial way of, uh, in many ways, working against natural cycles to maximize yields and, you know, led us to, to feed millions. And what we really think about a lot at FarmShare is sort of like this third way, like how can we take elements of technology to help uh, work more harmoniously with the land? I don't think that they have to be sort of like these two jibing forces. I think that what we can do and where the biggest opportunity exists in, uh, you know, for technology and in, in, in agriculture today is finding ways that we can bring efficiencies to optimize responsible ways of agricultural production. And that's really what we're focused on. We're not, you know, focusing on maximizing profits for a big agricultural corporation. We're focused on building the tooling to help you and others do their job better, right? If, if you have all of these 
tools, right, on your phone, and they're not what you're going to uh, to throughout your 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 da- daily uh, work to you know supplement whatever you're doing. I think that that's testament in itself that these are tools that have not been built in, in a way that really advance things for you. Obviously, there are there are reasons why you know we should be entering you know, our data on, on the, for the first time on, you know, the single source of truth, right? Your legal pad gets lost. You have to now spend time back at the off at the office, like transferring that legal pad back into whatever other, you know, data repository you have. Like if we can build tools that are really, really, um, you know, symbiotic with your day-to-day work that you naturally gravitate towards that bring efficiencies. So it's optimizing your time and you can spend, you know, less time on the admin and the monotony, but more time doing what at the end of the day actually matters, then we have done our job successfully. And we think based off of so many conversations that we've had just like this, that there's a void in the market right now. And so we really see the opportunity to create technology that, small ag producers really love that are easy for them to use that are intuitive that don't take a lot of technical acumen really simplistic um and you know that that's what farm share is really all about okay i know well not not i know but i talked about it on on the podcast a couple weeks ago i am i'm kind of really leaning towards dispersing my cow herd and Going and cooperating with with a good friend of mine, we've been working together already for two years, running cattle together. Um, we're we're talking about combining our operations and funneling through a beef business that the area has access to. Um, one of the reasons behind that is, I thought I could do all the back back end myself, right? You know, build the website, build the store, you know, set up the payment processing, figure out all the shipping fulfillment. You know, and I get a lot of people do that. Okay. It just got to the point where it was taking up a lot of my time trying to figure out how to do that. And the returns were starting to diminish. You know, I'm, I'm starting to see my potential market shrink because there's a lot of other people that are trying to do what I'm doing. Okay. I think I maybe took a little bit too long to build, to build my program. And that one's on me. And that's, that's a totally fair criticism, but it's, figuring out how to take people's money, how there's some accountability, and then figuring out how to get them product back from the locker. So I don't live in a big city. I don't live anywhere close to a big city. Like I might be lucky to to catch a half a million people within a two hour radius of me. And that's only because Wichita is there. And if I want to ship anything out, I have to go to the locker drive almost an hour to get to somewhere where I have, where I have access to dry ice to where I can start shipping things out. So this, this channel like simplifies a lot of things for me. So those are some problems that I had, uh, you know, and then setting up payment processing and charging tax. And then once you get past that, you know, then there's the question of filling, uh, fulfilling shipments, right? I mean, that's what it really comes down to. Everything before everything before you slap that label on the box and the UPS picks it up, everything on that is just foreplay because that's really where the money is right there. You got to get that product on the truck and it's got to get to your customer within two days 
or it's not going to be good anymore. So walk me through a little bit on, on how farm share could help with some of those problems. Yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, uh, the pain points that you touched on are, you know, pretty, pretty universal, I think for a lot of, uh, a lot of ranchers, um, right? Like there's a lot that goes into standing up an online business. Um, there's the actual e-commerce infrastructure. It's the shopping cart. It's the, you know, SEO, it's the marketing, it's the payment gateway. Um, that that's all just like creating the presence. Right. But then, you know, there's a whole separate issue, which is like the logistics, right? I have this customer now, but how do I actually get the product to them? And, you know, the, the realization that we had was that so much of the country today, so many of the country's ag producers are really cut off from direct to market access, right? There's over 2 million small farms uh, in the U.S. or really rather 2 million small ag businesses, but only 7% participate in direct to market business today. Why? Well, you know, it's really been limited to geography and seasonality. Unless you live, you know, within uh, the vicinity of a, a metro where you can go and sell direct to market at a farmer's market. And by the way, that's seasonal. You're only doing that for, you know, a few months out of the year, like here in, here in Minneapolis, where they've got really long winters, the farmer's market only goes for like, two years, right? But only the producers that live within like three hours of Minneapolis are coming in to sell here. So a lot of the market is is cut off. And I think the biggest barrier to entry is like figuring out this logistics issue, right? It's tough, like dry ice, cold chain packaging. How do I set up the relationships with, you know, the third party uh, providers? Um, you know, that's what my background is. So like, I mean, we can talk more about that, but like, that's the world I came from. And so I, I knew that world. I know, I knew how to make that work. And I saw that there was currently a void in, in agriculture. And so we've really like demystified all of that. We've we're broken it down and structured a standardized process. that's very turnkey for a producer like you or, or anyone else um, to, you know, leverage the shared infrastructure of, uh, you know, the e-commerce solutions that we've built uh, to leverage the infrastructure of the logistics uh, technology that we've built, just to maybe dive a little bit deeper on the logistics side of things. So what's really unique about FarmShare is we have built a uh, logistics uh, technology, which basically integrates rates from a bunch of different carriers, both national partnerships we have with UPS and FedEx regional uh, partnerships with carriers like Axel Hire and VHO. So for example, if you had a customer in, in Wichita, right? Like we might use a more regional carrier versus like a FedEx or UPS all the way down to, and probably not applicable to you, but like we, what we also will use like Uber, for example, like if we have a, a rather close uh, delivery, um, we can leverage Uber, but we don't, we keep that all sort of obfuscated from the producer. It's, it's not, it's not any concern to you whatsoever. What we do is we look at every single shipment or order that you get and we automatically rate shop that we determine, okay, here are all the different producers. We basically, you know, ping their APIs and say like, okay, this is the order. This is the customer. Here's the shipper. This is how much the product weighs. What's the best rate you can get me. 
then we automatically select the best rate for that two days. Well, for, you know, for, for, for this and beef, what we're talking about is two days, but you know, maybe it's, maybe it's shorter. Maybe it needs to be overnight. Maybe it needs, it could be longer. We, we can, we can basically just define the constraint for the time on every single product. Um, Print that label, send it directly to your inbox, and then automatically schedule a pickup for that product, right? So now you're not having to drive two hours to go drop off the product. You have FedEx, UPS, Beho arriving directly at your, your ranch, picking up that product and sending it directly to the customer. Okay, I dig it. I dig it. And that's that's something that the industry, that the sector has, has needed for a while, Um I'm trying to remember who it was that I talked to about um, like a cold storage type model. Like, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like uh, in your model, like I would go to the locker, get the meat, bring it back my storage. And then I would be shipping from here. Um, Idea that I was kind of kicking around is, you know, there are cold storage warehouses everywhere around. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, and they have, they have fleets of trucks that move stuff between, you know, cold storage warehouses. And granted, this isn't something I've really looked into a lot. And, you know, there's names of the couple of companies that, that do this kind of thing escape me right now. But it almost, that to me, I could, the problem for a lot of small producers is storage. Mm. You know, you can only get so many deep freezes so many chest freezers or so many upright freezers before your basement's full before your garage is full and it's just eating you alive and inefficiencies of power and you got to build a walk-in cooler well mm-hmm. you know those those get expensive fast so the thought was and, and I'm, I'm still kind of working on this is what if there was a platform to where all I had to do was take something to the processor and drop it off. Yeah. And then it gets processed. And when it's processed, it gets picked up and moved to a cold storage warehouse in, you know, in Wichita, in my case, would probably be the closest Dodge city, maybe because, you know, Dodge city, it's kind of where all the packing plants are anyway. And I imagine there's some cold storage out there for rent. There has to be. Um, but then we, you know, we move all the product to Wichita and then it ships out from there. And yeah, you know, that's less hands-on for the producer. But cold storage, they're going to need to have, you know, they're going to need some revenue out of that. And they're going to need some mm-hmm. revenue for the fulfillment part of it. But to me, that's just another, you know, that would be another good link in the chain to take something off the rancher's back, right? You know, it, ranchers, ranchers and farmers share the food dollar. You know, that's, that's been a big part of the food conversation for the last three years. And, you know, let's say I can get, you know, 85 or 90 cents on the dollar going to the farmer's market, selling direct to consumer. I'm also going to have a hell of a lot of overhead that's going to eat into that 95 cents, mm-hmm. you know, but that's a lot better than the 30, you know, 30 or 35 cents I'm going to get at the bar. Okay. We need to be somewhere, you know, in that 70 to 80 cents, I think, for for things to really start happening for the farmers and ranchers. Mm-hmm. And if we can reduce their workload down to the point where, you know, I just have to take an animal to the processor and I call you with the code or I scan her in on my phone and say, you know, this one's at the processor this day and, 
you know, than the processor or, or whatever. But you, you get what I'm saying. Like, you know, there's a cold storage custody chain that goes direct to the fulfillment pipeline as soon as that animal is ready to be picked up from the processor and it doesn't have to, you know, go through another couple of steps before it can go to fulfillment. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting idea. Um, I naturally gravitate towards like, yeah, we're trying to maximize margin for, for you at the end of the day, right. Adding in transportation from the processor to the cold storage, having it at that cold storage storage, third-party logistics center, um, you know, obviously cost, cost money. Um, right. Like I, I, I know that that's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a negligible expense. Um, so I, I really wonder like, um, you know, what's, what's the trade-off there, right? Like at what point does it become more expensive for, you know, a rancher to buy into that sort of model versus maybe just, you know, in, investing in, in, in more uh, cold storage uh, on-prem. Um, so certainly, it's certainly, um, you know, something worth, worth exploring. And I'd, I'd love to do a little bit more like analysis on that. And I think that from, from our perspective, like definitely something that we would, we would be willing to support. I mean, we not, are not only uh, fulfilling like from uh, our ranchers, uh, you know, uh, place of business, but we're also fulfilling from, from directly from meat lockers. Right. Um, so some, some of our producers like have basically, uh, you know, struck a deal with their, with their butcher, um, and they'll, they'll like pick and pack the orders for them. And then we just send FedEx or UPS directly to the meat locker, pick up the pro the, the shipment and ship it directly from there. Or they'll pick one day of the week that they, they collate all of their, you know, their orders through the week and then everything goes out on, on Monday morning. Right. So they'll, they'll head to the meat locker. They'll spend like three hours in the morning packing all of their, their, their orders and then meet UPS, pick up the, you know, the, the, the set of orders for that week and, and send them out. Um, yeah. I think the idea of working with a, uh, a, a cold storage facility, it, it could, it could have its place. Right. I think that um, you, you, obviously there's some, some, criteria we'd have to think through first right like you're within earshot of wichita right so it seems like something that makes sense but you know some of the some of the ranchers that we're working with are you know they're 100 miles from the closest like thousand person town um so yeah i have friends in wyoming too (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly right exactly and so for them like the the, the the structure that we've put together of you know picking up directly from you know their ranch is the is the most simplistic right and it also it, it retains the most margin for them at the end of the day um, we're trying to mitigate those input costs and those ever overhead costs as much as possible uh, to to try and get closer to that that seventy to eighty uh, percent uh, take rate so um, yeah we're I, I think that you know one one of the things that is important to recognize here is, and I, you, you said this in regards to data, right? It's not a one size fits all, right? Every rancher is going to have a little bit of a, a nuance to their business. They're going to have some intricacies to, to how they want to, uh, you know, to, to store their data. And the same goes for how they want to, what they want the distribution of their product to be like. And uh, our goal as a company is to be flexible and to be able to support as much, uh, as much different 
uh, flavors uh, for our producers as possible. We don't want to be like this super rigid sort of uh, process that we're expecting the entire industry to like, you know, bend to. Um, but we, we need to meet uh, producers where they are uh, with tools that support them and, and however they're doing business. Okay. Um, before we got on here, I, I hopped on your website. I was looking around for a little bit, just kind of get familiar. Like, seems like there are just a ton of options for beef. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's some variability in the price and there's some variability in, you know, the size I saw. I, I was mostly looking at eighth boxes because that's, you know, and I, I think an eighth box, you know, around 40 pounds, almost everybody can fit that in the freezer. Mm-hmm. We start talking about quarters, halves, and holes. You know, I grew up having a deep freeze and two refrigerators. And and here at my house now, I have, I have three deep freezes and two fridges. I have two deep freezes out at the ranch, and they're all full of meat, and it's not just my cows. And I, that's normal. Everybody I grew up with, it was normal to have a deep freeze, if not, you know, two or two fridges. You know, that's pretty normal. I get that that's a very, that that's a minority. Like, you know, that's a minority situation. Most people don't even have a full-size refrigerator in their apartment. Okay. I get that. And we're in a different era than we were last time to direct to consumer sales were a thing and people were buying buying you know meat in cut or buying meat in primals right or you know in primal quantities people can't do that anymore because they don't have anywhere to put it so i think as producers we need to get to a smaller box and i think the eighth box is is a good place to be so that's anyway that's why i was looking at prices on eighth boxes and i noticed there's like kind of like the bottom end was uh 375 400 and it went up to went up to around 600 and granted, I just kind of scrolled through, but it does have the rancher's name, you know, has the, has the, has the ranch's name where it came from and what it is. The question I would have is how, like, how hard is it to, to get a unique brand identity on your platform and build a following? Like, do you have people that are loyal to loyal on the platform to a ranch that keep going back to that ranch? Or are you seeing are you seeing your consumers on the platform are more driven by price? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. I want to first talk about your comment on you know the deep freezers. I I think that is important to recognize that you know direct it direct to direct beef businesses in the past have been predicated on shares, right? Like that's how people have bought beef directly from ranchers in the past. And, you know, there's certain criteria for that customer to even be able to you know, contemplate buying beef in that way. They've got to have the capacity uh, to store a, a whole or a half or a quarter. And the reality is, is most of Americans don't have that access. And, and so as we try and, you know, scale the direct beef business to more of America, we have to recognize like, OK, well, what is the actual capacity for most for most Americans? And so what we're really trying to do is take like the direct beef business, which has been sort of more of a rural game 
and open it up and make it accessible to more suburban and uh, urban consumers, right? They still want the same tra- you know, transparency and traceability in their beef, but they don't necessarily have the capacity to go in and buy an entire you know, uh, animal. And so what we're trying to do is basically you know, take the model and democratize it to all Americans who want to be buying beef directly from a rancher, um, but probably in smaller quantities. And what I'll say is like, there's a lot of benefit to that, right? If you, if you can, uh, obviously the mar- the, the margins can be much higher when you're selling uh, cuts than when you're selling, you know, wholesale. Um, and if you have the proper tools in place that like make it efficient and effective for you to sell that way, which is what we as a company aim to do, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty enticing, uh, you know, uh, way to go to market. Um, so I'll just, I'll just share like one sort of interesting fact with you about like where we, like what we see in terms of consumer behavior, the average order value on our platform is about $140. Right. So we're not see like, yes, we, we, we have people that are buying at, uh, eights and that's really right now, like the, the most that we're, we're selling um, just because, you know, we've, our, our focus today has primarily been around shipping. Now we're evolving to support more like local delivery, local pickup, et cetera. But the majority of our business to date has really been focused on shipping and it, you know, shipping more than an eighth becomes really, really expensive. Um, but despite, you know, having, having that, and you, you know, you, you mentioned like sort of the price range there on the ACE that we have on our, our platform, the average order value is at $140, right? So, you know, I encourage all the ranchers coming onto our platform to think about that when they're thinking about, you know, the merchandising of their products, you know, be, be mindful of the fact that like most Americans, like, like they want to buy like a hundred and around 140, $150 worth of beef. Uh, right. And that's probably reflective of how much space they actually have to to house that beef at any given point in time. To, to, to your second question around, like, you know, product differentiation and how we start to, um, you know, give give platform to any one producer uh, selling in farm share um, and sort of the, the you know, the, the repeat pay rates and the customer loyalty. Um we we see that a lot of our a lot of our consumers come in and gravitate towards like uh, local first. Lo- local first is a is a major driver for consumer behavior on our platform when there's parity between products, right? So we have some producers or some customers coming in that are looking for something very very specific, right? They want a a, a grass fed, uh, grass finished P- Piedmontese beef, right? Well, they might not have that locally, right? They might have like some Angus close to them, but they have a very particular product that they're looking for. And that will sometimes override the drive towards local. But for the most part, the 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 the, the major determinant in the consumer's uh, prioritization is location. So that's what we see driving a lot of consumer choice on our platform is how close is this producer to me? Are they in my state? Are they in the, the state over? But sort of the second order um, in in the consumer uh, decisioning is, uh, you know, the attributes, right? Like as a platform, we're, we are, we really, you know, are are 
see ourselves as sort of like a, a free market, right? We're, we're not in the business of telling, you know, saying like, this is the right way to produce beef. This is the wrong way to produce beef. I mean, I think in generalities, we, we can say that a lot of like an industrial factory farming is, 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 is wrong. And we don't, we don't stand for that. But when it comes down to like, okay, how should the, where should the beef be raised? You know, how should it be finished? You know, should it have, you know, antibiotics? Should it have, you know, what sort of grain should it have, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that's not our place. We're not experts there. Um, but what we want to do at the end of the day is we want to give platform to our producers to really, um, you know, express uh, their their business and their philosophies um, and give that transparency to the consumers so that we can be a matchmaker. Right At the end of the day, that's where we see our opportunity is really in matchmaking these two economic traders. Right. I, I dig it. And like the whole theme is not the whole theme, but, and this is rolling around my head. It's go back to what you're good at. I'm not a marketer. Like I, I'm not a self promoter. Anybody that listens to podcasts probably knows that pretty well. Like I, I'm not the best self promoter in the world and I'm not a great marketer, but what I am, what I do try to spend time doing is telling my story talking about what I do, posting pictures about, you know, how I do it and the why behind it. And it's been, I can't remember. I've lost track of how many people have said this, the successful ranch businesses in 10 years are going to be the ones that are telling their story today. And I believe that. And whether we're telling a story about, you know, how good we think our cows are, how much they gain every day or how good our grass is and that, you know, our ranch is full of native birds and, and beavers and all kinds of things. Those of us that are telling their story and being transparent about our production practices, I think, I think we're going to be the ones that are successful and industrial ag has some problems. I think everybody in agriculture would acknowledge that there are some very serious problems with industrial agriculture. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean that the guy, you know, in Nebraska or Iowa that grows his own corn and soybeans to feed to his own cows and his feedlot is, is bad, right? That's something completely different, you know, than the industrialized JBS Tyson national Smithfield model, totally different. But there, there's still some similarities between that farmer feeder, right? You know, I'm still going to want to know how many antibiotics that animal had. You know, I might even want to know, was the grain you fed him? What'd you spray on the grain you fed him? It doesn't have to be organic. It doesn't have to be non-GMO. Just tell me what you sprayed on it. I mean, if you put atrazine on it, tell me that. Okay? That's all I want. That, that's it. That's all I ask. Um, to that effect, like back at the beginning of the year, I had a friend... Uh, it's about 30, 40 miles away. He farms, he's a conventional commodity farmer. And he made a post on Facebook. He said, if I milled wheat in my kitchen, how many people would buy flour from me in mason jars? And I said, Denton, sir, I will throw away all the flour in my house and replace it with your flour if I can buy it from you. Me too. And... 
He he hasn't called me. I mean, like they're they're still trying to wrap up wheat harvest a lot in this part of the world. It should have been done a month ago, um, and he might not have had a whole lot to cut. But I would much rather it. And it's not it's not organic. It's not GMO wheat, right? It's not no till. It's not you know regeneratively grown. I'll still buy it from him because it's going to put more dollars in his pocket than if he took it to the elevator, and it's going to encourage him to continue, and it's going to encourage him to do more of that next year and he'll tell me everything he sprayed on it why he sprayed it and when he sprayed it and i appreciate that mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. chemicals in the food system are a problem you know alex jones said it several years ago and people just didn't get it when he said i'm tired of him putting chemicals in the water it turned the freaking frogs gay atrazine changes sex characteristics in amphibians that's a fact that's on the M it's 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 in the paperwork that they submitted to EPA like atrazine can change sex characteristics in some amphibians. So are they putting things in the water, turn frogs gay? Eh, I don't know. There's some truth to that. There's definitely something there. You know, just, just before I got on here, um, I, was, I looked at a TikTok, and it was this guy with like, bunch of his kids around him and they're watching a crop duster and the crop duster goes by and you know it doesn't go right over him the video doesn't show any drift coming their way just want to be clear on that but they're all like they're out there celebrating and my only thought is gee and we wonder why there's so many chronic diseases and autoimmune illnesses in rural america these days you know it Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I think that I think that you're you're I think I, I want to go one step farther on uh you know your your buddy the the in in buying wheat directly from him versus you know buying it uh once it's gone through you know the industrial food supply chain. I I, I would I would wager to bet that his practices might change a little bit. You know, as if he starts selling to you and to neighbors and, you know, to folks in Wichita, because he, you know, his customer is now the consumer and it's not the grain elevator, right? The expectation for that product, the expectation around transparency is completely different. There's much more value placed on the, the the naturalness of the production of that product. There's much more acceptance of maybe natural inefficiencies of the way he's producing that product and much more leniency not to be, you know, chemically manipulating and manufacturing these products to meet some arbitrary specifications of how that product should be produced. So I think that you, you call it a really important point here, Brian, but which is like, like providing that direct to market access for any ag producer, it does so much. It starts to fundamentally shift the way in which we produce products in this country, right? When, when the buyer of our goods shifts from a corporation to an individual who has a different set of priorities and concerns in motivators, it starts to inform the way that we're producing those goods for that consumer. And, you know, as, as human beings, 
will 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 gravitate towards you know things that are are more natural that we feel better about. It's a feeling. It's emotional, right? It's 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 yes, one feeling good about putting your dollar into the pocket of the person who's nurtured that that food that you're putting in your body, but it's also having the confidence to know that that product was produced in a more you know responsible and sustainable way. Um, and so I just think, you know, we're living at this point in time where, you know, the con- consumer is more demanding now than ever. Um, we expect, you know, agency and control in almost everything that we consume, media, um, you know, food, and giving the consumer the choice to vote with their dollars and to put their dollars directly into your pocket versus, you know, Walmart or Kroger is extremely important in, in enabling that we will give rise to more responsible practices. I mean, in order for us to be able to really make a a different in terms of, you know, mass adoption of regenerative agricultural practices, we need to give access to that, that distribution and and that currently is 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 so limited. And so we really see our opportunity as a company to scale that access. Because yes, a you know, a consumer of yours that lives in Wichita, they may they might know you and they might know how to buy your beef. But there's a there's a consumer in New York City who would love to buy your beef and he doesn't have a way to today. Right. He doesn't want to be spending his dollars at Target. He doesn't want to be spending his dollars at Walmart. He would much rather be putting his dollars in your pocket. Right. And so I think that access is so important. That takes me to the second point, which is the one you made around storytelling. Right. The 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 ranchers that are going to be successful in 10 years are the ranchers that are telling their story today. And you, you know, to your credit, have done a tremendous job at, at telling your story. But every single rancher has a story, but they just don't know how to tell it. They don't either have the platform to tell it. They don't have, you know, the wherewithal to put themselves out there. What we're really trying to do is help to give the platform to these producers to tell their story, to build this authentic connection between producers and consumers. Because at the end of the day, the consumer wants to hear that story. They want to know where that product is coming from. They want to know the philosophy behind the way you raise that product. And so for us to be successful and really scaling direct to market uh, beef sales, it's really incumbent on our ability to successfully tell a story because that is the motivator, right? We're not going to compete on price, right? We're, you know, we know how much it costs to responsibly produce beef, right? It's never going to compete with, you know, factory farm feedlot beef that's coming through, you know, Walmart. Um, and it shouldn't, right? It shouldn't. Well, I'll just, I'll just say, and, you cannot compete grazing cattle on grass with, with gain rates that guys get standing in a feedlot eating 20 or $40 a ton distiller's grain or wet beet pulp. I cannot 100%. compete. There is no comparison between between a pastured animal that's that takes two to three years to finish on grass to market weight versus a feedlot animal that stands in a pen and eats wet beet pulp or 
distiller's grain all day for a year and a half and then goes to get slaughtered at heavier weights than I do. You know, 100%. It's not a healthy animal. And that, that production system is so heavily subsidized by tax dollars. It's just, it's absolutely disgusting that grass-based, it, the disadvantage in the marketplace that a grass-based producer has competing against over-subsidized grain-fed beef is just absurd. And I would love somebody to put math to it to show mm-hmm. how heavily subsidized that feedlot commodity beef model is and where those subsidy money flows actually end up going. You know, I, I got to rant a little bit. You know, Yeah, no, it's fine. Farm bill coming up. Oh, we got to yeah. have a farm bill. We got to have all these price supports and insurance protections for farmers. We just had this horrible drought. We got to increase support for our farmers because we got to feed the world. No. Factory farms do not feed the world. 85% of the world is fed by subsistence farmers. Like 85% of the world. So that 15% of the world includes the U.S. We're eating hyper-processed crap. Most of us are. Europe's starting to eat a lot of hyper-processed crap. So who are we really feeding? I mean, we're not feeding the starving pygmies in New Guinea, okay? We're not doing that. We're not feeding starving children in our own country. We're not even feeding starving people in our own communities. So let's stop with the feed the world bullshit. Like, I'm I'm over that. Let's feed our communities. Yep. When there's hungry people in our communities, it's ridiculous. We need to solve those problems first. We need to be growing food in our communities that our communities are eating. Not number two dent corn that shipped a thousand miles to go feed cows in a feedlot. Not growing alfalfa with Colorado River water in Arizona and shipping it to Saudi Arabia. Let's stop. Let's stop. Yeah. Okay. Rant over. <laughs> I want to, I want to, I think that the rant though is really good and it's, it's demonstrative of a, a, a very, some very deep. You're not competing on, on price. You never will. And, and you shouldn't be. I can't so compete what are you on price. With? But then again, I don't think they can compete with me on quality. A hundred percent. And I, and, but here, here, here's, here's what I think uh, is really the lesson uh, and, and the takeaway for a lot of ranchers. Most of the, most of the consumers, like they don't just, they don't take that for granted. Like they don't take that or rather they don't take that for fact, right? They don't know really that you have a better quality product. So what do you compete on? I think fundamentally you compete on storytelling because your beef has a story. The beef at Walmart does not. And the consumer wants to hear your story. It's emotional for them, right? You have like, you have some levers when, when uh, trying to, to, to shift a consumer, right? It's price, it's convenience, it's quality, but it's also emotion, right? Qual- like, what do you have at, at your disposal? You have quality and you have emotion, right? The qu- But to get to prove the quality, you have to pull on some emotional heartstrings, right? You, you're not going to get in front of that customer and prove to them that you have a better beef product until they try it. And so how do you, 
you do it, you tell your story, you tell your story effectively. That is what the consumer behavior away from buying that Costco beef to buying beef from you. Right. And, you know, we were talking about the disconnect between producer and consumer. And, you know, I, I can see how your, how your platform is trying to solve some of those problems. And I, I like to say, I like to use the phrase, shake the hand that feeds you. And can I just show you something really quick, Brian? Yeah. 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 Give me one second. I, I got to show you this because um, I think you're going to love this. I've been just going to stand up trademarked and sh- that phrase. Well, you know who actually, uh, so, well, first of all, can you see oh, that? Sweet. Yeah. Shake the hand that feeds you. It's on the back of your shirt. That's awesome. It's on the back of my shirt. Yeah. 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 So I actually heard that from um, Michael Pollan. Okay. If you, uh, food, food writer. Yep. 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 Power steer. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he, the omnivores dilemma, I think he is when he, uh, in that book, that's where he, uh, he, he maybe, he maybe first introduced that phrase, but regardless of its origin, I think we can all agree that it's, it, it is, it is, it's so impactful and it's so true. And it, it sounds simple on the surface, shake the hand that feeds you. But it, there's there's layers there to unpack, and it's something that you can say to anybody that eats food. And great, you want to be a vegan. Last week's episode with Molly, which you haven't heard yet because it hasn't come out yet, um, with Molly Englehart. She's a really cool chick. She's a vegan. She runs a restaurant. Her co-owner is Woody Harrelson, and she's known him for <laughs> wow. 30 years. Yeah, she's a really cool chick. Um. You want to be vegan? Great. I have zero problem with that. I don't even want you to justify why you're vegan. Because I probably understand all the reasons. I just want you to verify your supply chain. I want Mm -hmm. you to go figure out where all your vegan food is grown and what that field looks like and who's growing it. Okay? You want to eat fake meat? Fine. Go to the lab and meet the people growing it. Okay? Go dig into the chemistry behind what it takes to grow that meat and tell me if you still want to eat it. Go research all those chemicals. Tell me if you still want to eat it. And if you want to eat beyond meat and uh, and those you know fake meat, after figuring out how they're made, what kind of chemicals it takes, what kind of energy, what kind of lab it takes, you still want to eat it, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. I'm not even going to talk bad about you. Okay? If somebody's willing to do their to do the diligence and trace their food back to the source, eat it. And if you can stomach that, that's fine. Go ahead and eat it. But it works on so many levels. You know, you can't shake the hand when you're buying that meat at Walmart. Commodity product. Yeah, there's a label on it. You can trace it back to the packing plant that it came from. But can I trace it back to the guy that put the bull on the cow that bred that calf that's now in your, that's now on your plate. Absolutely not. And I think that's what the next generation of consumers is going to demand, right? You know, we talk about changes in the marketplace and what people are wanting to buy and how people are buying. And I'm going to throw this out there and we'll see if you back me up on it or not. The older generation, the baby boomers, they're not the ones on your platform. 
the Gen Xers, which are, you know, the generation a little younger than the boomers. So like say 45 to 70 there, you're getting a few of those. The millennials, which are like 30 to 40 right now, that's, that's your bread and butter. I'm going to bet. And you're starting to see a strong, you're starting to see a surge off the top of the Gen Z, off the Zoomers. Do I have that right? You have it right. And I'll take it one step further. Not only are those the the sellers on our platform, but they're also the buyers. I, I was thinking those were the buyers, that those were the customers. Oh, those are the customers. So they're also the, they're also the, the, the sellers though. Okay. We don't have like the, the producers selling on our platform. Yeah, we definitely have like a few boomers. We have a few uh, Gen X, but the majority of the ranchers and farmers selling on our platform are the younger generations, right? They're the, they're the next wave of agribusiness owners, right? They recognize the evolving consumer landscape. They recognize the inefficiencies of the supply chain that their, their fathers and grandfathers have been selling into. And they recognize the opportunity to disrupt it. Yeah, we do have some really innovative, uh, you know, 70-year-old ranchers on our platform. We have a few, actually. But for the most part, the ranchers that really subscribe to the model that we're putting out are younger. They're, they're the Gen Zs. Uh, we, we have a few Gen Z ranchers on the platform. Uh, and they're... Uh, they're, they're the, the millennials. It's, a, it's a, this like, this isn't uh, actually what happens, but uh, how we as a team like to think about who we're appealing to uh, when we go out to talk with a, a farmer rancher, it's the farmer's eldest daughter, right? That That's like sort of the persona, right? That we try and a- appeal to, right? She's, you know, wanting to help out on the ranch. She understands the lifestyle. She understands the importance, but she also is digitally native, right? And she interacts in a digital world and she recognizes the efficiencies to be offered and realized in, you know, modern technologies. And she, you know, has the pressure to help out with the, you know, starting to help out with, with, with ranch chores and she's sort of in line to take over the ranch. And she's the one that's encouraging, like, Hey, like this is the way things are going. This is the opportunity that's in front of us. Like, let's go reach out and grab it. So like whether it's the, you know, the, the, the rancher's eldest daughter or not, I think that that sort of persona that we try to appeal to is really reflective of, you know, the 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 next generation of rancher that really sees how how the landscape is evolving but to your point about the consumer side of things uh a hundred percent um we're you know millennials and gen z are the most sustainably minded generation that's ever existed uh we we talk about how you know over 50 percent of them uh would pay a premium for a quote unquote sustainably produced uh, product, right? It's never that that statistic has never been that high. 
um, you know, environmental impact and also personal health is a top priority in, in, in their, their consumption decisioning. Um, and, and just to maybe zoom out a little bit and talk about, you know, the, the way in which the, the consumer market is, is evolving. Like we're living at a point in time where people, and is mainly led by millennials and Gen Z are buying food online. Like this is this this is a new phenomenon. This is an entirely new consumer behavior, and, and most of it was accelerated by the pandemic, right? If you go back to 2018, and we we, we talk about like grocery. Only three percent of all grocery sales were made online. Now in 2023, it's 14 percent, right? Entirely new consumer behavior that sort of just like accelerated through the pandemic, right? So now you have this younger consumer who's sustainably minded. They also are, you know, in they're, they're getting into their real earning potential in their career. So they have disposable income and they have this new consumer behavior of buying things online. Well, think about the opportunity now that all of these, you know, rural ranchers have to appeal to this customer set. They check all the boxes. They have the money to spend on the premium product. They have the, the, the motivators to seek out a more responsibly produced product and they also are willing to buy products over the internet and have it shipped to them. In fact, for many of them, that's their preferred, you know, means of, of purchasing. So like the timing could not be better for small ranchers across this country to get their products to market. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I definitely see that, you know, and I'm just, I'm thinking that, you know, there are so many people that got upset in 2020 and 2021 about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and their space programs. Like, guys, you're the ones that bought all the Teslas. <laughs> you're the ones that bought all the shit off Amazon. Like, really? You're going to complain about that? And then then go order another, you know, then go order some shit off Amazon and take your Tesla down to the store? Really? I think people have been disconnected. Well, maybe not disconnected. They're starting to see a lot of the system for what it is. You know, like since we're picking on Amazon a little bit, you know, Amazon was great in 2019. I could get anything I wanted with two day free shipping. Like I could order stuff on Monday night and it would show up Wednesday afternoon. Like it was kind of neat. Mm -hmm. And then March 2020 hit. And now I'm paying twice as much for Prime as I was in 2019, and it takes a week to get anything. And, you know, and then people are upset about working conditions in the Amazon warehouses and upset about Bezos' space program and that, you know, and his yacht that they had to disassemble a bridge to, you know, so it could get out in the ocean. And people are talking about that and they're upset about it. Stop supporting the asshole. Like, it, that, it, mm -hmm. it's simple. Like, stop supporting him. Okay, well, maybe it's kind of hard because half of the internet runs on Amazon Web Services. Okay. When it's almost unavoidable in daily life to give Jeff Bezos money because you're either using buying something on Amazon or using a website on AWS. Yeah, okay. The guy can spend a couple billion dollars on a space program. Let's just think about how he got there. You know, in the same token... 
you know, how did how did Tyson, Smithfield, JBS, Cargill, and National get where they are? Same way. And I'm not saying that, you know, Amazon's going to get disassembled overnight or or those big packers are going to get disassembled overnight. I don't think they are. I think that the changing buying patterns of the American consumers will eventually will eventually take away their market share, right? Okay, 14% of people buy groceries. That's a good solid that's a good solid demographic number. And and sure there's people out there going, "Wow, 14% nothing." 14% market capture is huge. At 14%, they can't kick you out. Like you're yeah. there. You're an established player at 14% and you're gaining market share. That's where grass-fed beef was 4 years ago. Mm-hmm. Was it 13% of market share and we're growing every day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um two 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 really key ideas pull pull out of that um first of all on the 14 percent like 14 of nearly a trillion dollars right that that that's how big the like food the the consumer food expenditure on an annual basis is in the u.s so so it that that 14 14 represents a big big number on the amazon side I had a really, I was talking to a rancher the other day uh, up in Montana um, and she painted a really great picture for me. I never really thought about it in this way. You're, you know, a consumer um, that's driving down the road and you find like a little farm store and you, you bop in and you, you want to buy some beef. Um, you, you probably have uh you know, some, some forgiveness on any sort of, you know, issue or inefficiency that you might encounter in that experience, right? Got one small, you know, clerk working that shop and, uh, you know, you're, you have a level of understanding and you're, you're probably willing to overlook, you know, a, a subpar customer experience that does not translate. Has that changed in the last couple of years? Like mainstream has that changed? Cause I, I can kind of sense a change in myself. So like five, okay. five, six years ago, you know, if I'd walk into a place and there wasn't somebody right there to wait on me, I'd get upset. Mm. And now if I walk in and, and maybe it's cause I'm going to different places. Okay. That that's, that's also possibly true. You know, when I go to my friend's farm shop and they're not there, no big deal. I just get what I need and I check myself out. A lot of times they'll come running out from the house and be like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. And you know, hugs, hugs and handshakes all around. And it's great. Um, shit. I forgot what I was saying. Did it change? Has it changed? Yeah. So had, has that, do you think that's changed? Cause now it, I'm not going to be any more tolerant of, of a big box store. Like mm-hmm. if I have a problem at a big box store, you know, and, and the, you know, the hourly employee is probably not going to help me. We go to the manager, manager's probably not going to do a whole lot because he probably has mm-hmm. zero, zero authority to do anything. But when you go to that farm store, even if that person's out back taking care of pigs or fixing fence and has to run in, they're working. Yeah. And if you have a problem, they're going to fix it. And I was, I was thinking about this earlier. So if I go to Walmart and I get a package of ground beef and it's got a bone in it, 
Yeah, whatever. If one of my customers gets a package of ground beef from me that's got a bone in it, and they tell me about it, I'm probably going to give them a free pound. And then I'm going to call the locker and be like, yo, not mad. One of my customers just had a bone and some ground beef. Just want to let y'all know. And then maybe they can go look at their grinder and see, oh, hey, got a plate broke here and it's letting some stuff through. We'll fix that. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen at a big plant. Yeah. You know, I have people. I sell somebody bad meat, you know, that 100% gets replaced. You know, I can't make somebody sick. If I make anybody sick, I'm probably out of business. Tyson Cargill, they ship a half a million pounds of, of bad meat and make a bunch of people sick. And they just get to pay a little fine and say, we're sorry and go on. I think that people, um, to your question, I think that people became a little bit more understanding through the pandemic because I think that the pandemic really shined a light on just the frig fragility of local small businesses, right? We saw so many businesses fold during the pandemic, right? And so I think that people are a little bit more understanding um, of the the nature of of small business uh, now uh, and supporting local than they they have been in the past. I think that that was a byproduct of of, of the pandemic. But I think you know uh, to, to the original point, like it, the, what what this rancher was telling me was like when she goes to you know a small country store farm shop, you know she has this level of understanding. She has this level of um, you know, willingness and intolerance um, to maybe not the most ideal or optimal customer experience. But when you take that online, there that that goes out the, the window immediately, right? We as consumers have been conditioned by the likes of Amazon to expect this instant gratification for everything to be so smooth, for everything to be seamless right and when we have a bunch of these you know smaller producers that are trying to like emulate amazon right in terms of customer experience it's not going to work right it's not going to work the, like you said like you're 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 a rancher right you're not a technologist you're you know you're not you don't do online payments right you don't do marketing right so you're never going to be able to provide a customer experience that you know, competes with Amazon. And if you did, that means that you're probably not spending your time where you should be, which is on the ranch. So what we see as our opportunity is to like, let's handle that for producers, right? Like let's create the best possible customer experience that we can to emulate like the status quo of online shopping as it exists today. And let's share that access to a producer like yourself so that we can make it feel is much like Amazon because the reality is whether we like it or not, like it's a, it's a, it's a creature comfort, right? That's how, that's how we've evolved. We want things now and we want it to be there tomorrow. Um, so like we, like our whole philosophy is like, we want to take, you know, some of these modern uh, technologies, we want to, you know, evolve to the expectation of the modern consumer in terms of convenience and then we want to disperse that access out through the industry so that 
all of the producers can benefit from this shared infrastructure and we can meet the customer where they are today because they are not going to have they're not going to have the understanding and the tolerance when it comes to online. The second that there's an issue, guess what? They're going to to order it from Walmart, right? Because they know it's going to be reliable and convenient and it's going to arrive there tomorrow and they're not going to face any, you know, hiccups along the way. So so I think I think that, you know, that that was like a really like light bulb moment for me when I heard this rancher say that she was so worried about you know, just how she was going to compete with sort of the customer expectations that, you know, consumers have in, in online shopping today. And, uh, you know, I don't think that producers should be worrying about that. I heard something, or you know, this morning in regards to Amazon that I just found fascinating. So just as, as some preface here, Brian, I'm at um, this uh, business accelerator here in Minneapolis. My whole team moved here. It's called Techstars Farm to Fork. And it's uh, focused it, on tech stars farm to fork tech stars farm to fork. Yeah. And it's basically focused on uh, startups and ag tech and food tech who are reshaping the future of food. Um, so we have teams, there's 10 of us in here, 10 companies in here from all over the world. We've got a team, we've got two teams from Italy, one from Australia, uh, one from Nigeria, a uh, few from from the U.S. Um, and it's really it's really awesome sort of to be here with all of these um, these startups that are really you know trying to to challenge the status quo. And I had a, had a had a coffee this morning with one of the companies, and they're in uh, they create um, technology for for dairy. And we were talking about Amazon, and this was you know unbeknownst to me, but Amazon is really listening to the to the consumer. They're coming to recognize that there's this growing consumer demand around traceability, that there's this growing consumer demand around transparency, that there's this growing consumer demand around having, you know, the agency to pick exactly like where their product is coming from. They don't want to buy it from a black box anymore, right? They want to know where it's coming from. They want to understand the supply chain and Amazon is they're They're building this functionality out. So, Amazon on their product roadmap is going to be releasing feature and filtering functionality that will enable consumers to have more choice in where their product is coming from. Oh, I want to buy, you know, uh, you know, uh, fruit that hasn't come from outside of this country. I can select that. I want to buy, you know, meat that was raised here in Colorado, which is where I live. I, I can buy that. So Amazon is, they're evolving, like they're, they're, they're a well-oiled machine and they're, you know, constantly adopting to, you know, what consumer expectations are. And they, they recognize that, you know, there's a lot of consumer dissatisfaction around, you know, the industrialization of so many parts of, uh, you know, what we consume today. And so they're really evolving to meet that consumer demand, which, which is, which is a bit scary, I think, for, for people like us. Um, but I think that again, like it just further places the emphasis on like the storytelling because the, the, you know, the edge that, that we have that they will never have is this authenticity. It's this connection. It's this relationship and like really getting like your story and your narrative out in front of the consumer is the way in which I think all small ranches have the ability to compete. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, there was something else I heard about Amazon 
read about them in the last week or so that several years ago they instituted a company-wide yes policy and okay so let me let me explain that a little bit so if your manager of a team and one of your team members comes to you with an idea you either had to say yes or write a two-page thesis about why it wouldn't work and that is just a real short little anecdote. And they said that one of the things that came out of that institutional yes program was Amazon web services, which, you know, it is their number one profit center now. So just, just something about Amazon, like an institutional yes policy or write a two page letter explaining why it won't work. If you want to say no, mm-hmm. I'm not implementing that here. <laughs> <laughs> That will not be yeah. a policy at this business, but I like it. And I like, and it's, it's, I think there's some good things there. So I want to know about Henry. I want to know about, tell me where you came from and what you've done with your life before this and how you got the idea for farm share and why you think it's important. Yeah, for sure. Before, before I jump into that, I think that that's a really important like uh, call out that you made about Amazon. And it's a very similar policy exists at Google too. It's basically at Google, they have like the 20% rule. 80% of your your time at your job, you focus on your job and what like your responsibilities are. But they give you the time, 20% of your time to focus on what you, whatever you want, whatever you think is important. And if we look at like the two companies that have probably provided like you know, some of the most innovation within our lifetimes, it's those two companies. So I think it's really like, you know, the, the idea of what they're implementing in their culture is really, really important. It's, 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 you know, always challenging status quo. It's, you know, promoting intellectual uh, curiosity. Um, And I think that that really spurs the innovation that those companies have benefited from. For example, like Gmail, Gmail was that came out of, you know, 20 to 20%, right? Similar to like AWS coming out of the yes policy. So I think that there's some, you know, as to what level uh, you pragmatically implement that in your business, uh, I think to, to each their own. But I think that, you know, theoretically, there's some benefit to that sort of, you know, framework at an organizational level. So, so my background, um, I did not come from an ag background. Uh, I'm 100% a, a city slicker. Uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, my earliest exposure to agriculture was actually through my mom. My mom worked for the senator of Wyoming. Um, and so I spent a lot of time on ranches and with cattlemen growing up. Uh, and I think that, like, uh, from to be introspective like that probably seeded some deep uh, admiration and passion for for that way of life. Um, but then I went on. Um, I moved to Colorado after college. Uh, was working in financial technology, um, and uh, then moved out to uh, San Francisco for my job. Was out there for a while um, working in uh, fintech and in, in e-commerce working with companies like Shopify and Square and a bunch of these big e-commerce technology companies. Never liked San Francisco, was literally out there for my job and my job only. And when the pandemic hit, um, I had the opportunity, like every 
everybody who worked in technology to to move and to go remote. And, you know, I'd always gravitated to the Rocky Mountain West. And so I moved to uh, Wilsaw, Montana, a ranching town of about 150 people. Um, I lived on a ranch there. My fiance, my dog and I, we, we moved there. We lived on a ranch, this seventh generation cattle ranch. And I kept my, my, my day job. Um, and uh, before and after my day job, uh, like before 9 a.m. and, you know, after 7 p.m., I was serving as a ranch hand on this on this cattle ranch. Um, and I got to know beef, you know, pretty well. Um, I got to go through a calving cycle. Uh, I got to go, you know, check fences, you know, every day. I got to really understand the, you know, the depths of, uh, of what it meant to be uh, a, a lot of cattlemen in this country. And I was just, AM cows are on you the know, calls. Did you have to catch? The we got some of those on the highway. Also, yeah, yeah, we definitely got some of those, and also we we were we also dispersed uh, several of those calls too, uh, right? Like the, the the neighbors' cows had broken through the fence and were out on on the on the highway as we were driving up to to check on the cattle. Uh, also, like being in in Montana, um, like like calving in Montana in March is treacherous. Um, I mean, you know, you have, we'd have to, we, we had this, uh, uh, Seth, the, the, the rancher that I, that I, that I lived on his ranch, he had this, uh, what he called like a calf, a calf oven, uh, which was basically like a dog house that at the, <laughs> at the bottom had like uh, a thermo thermo coil that we would take the, you know, the wet calves in, in the night and, and put them in there when it was, you know, snowing sideways and it was 20 below zero. Um, so it was an, it was an amazing experience. I, I could not have been happier for it, but it was also at the same time, deeply saddened um, to learn about the deep inefficiencies that were plaguing that industry. I, I quickly, when I got to the ranch, learned about that food dollar, right? I learned about, you know, of the every, every dollar that I was spending at the grocery store, only 14 cents making its way back to a, a small producer's pocket. And yeah. that, go ahead. And if that was at the end of 2020, that was as bad as it's been in a long time. Like for sure, price-wise structure for the producer, a hundred percent. And so it was accentuated, right? We were. It was worse at this point in time than it's, than it's ever been. And you know that realization of the very intermediated, antiquated hub and spoke supply chain that exists today. In contrast with what I was doing in my day job, I mean, at my day job, I was building technology for small businesses and, you know, a, apparel and beauty to go direct to market through the power of e-commerce. I had this like aha moment. I was like, why can't we apply some of this technology to agriculture? Why can't we bring small farms, ranches, fisheries direct to market through the power of e-commerce? And by the way, we're living at a point in time where people are ordering food, food online. We're living at a point in time where the consumer demands are higher than they've ever been. And it, I really recognize that there is this perfect opportunity to capitalize on all of this you know, momentum and really you know, introduce a platform shift that would give direct-to-market access to small ag businesses across this country uh, you know, a, a chance. Um and so we went out and we built our our first product, which was a marketplace. Um, we we launched a beta 
with uh, 30 producers from around the country. Um, we had like salmon fishermen in Alaska. We had, you know, beef growers in Montana. We had, you know, tropical fruit growers down in Florida. And it was an amazing, it was an amazing experience. And it was, you know, instantaneously validated by the market on both sides. We had, you know, so many producers interested in, you know, what we were offering. And we had so many consumers that loved the idea of, being able to buy food directly from the source and to to hear the stories of of these producers and feel you know trust and confidence of where their food was coming from, but through that experience we came to recognize that the issues were actually much pervasive than just the market access. We found that there is fundamentally a void in the services and technology and infrastructure that were supporting these small ag businesses. If they were really going to give up, you know, a fighting chance to compete against big ag, and they were going to really be given a chance in the modern marketplace, they needed tools and infrastructure that were going to support them and help them to thrive. And so we're, we're now at a point in our business where we're really focusing on building a comprehensive suite of services and infrastructure to support small ag businesses. Again, you know whether that be inventory management, whether that be capital products, like annual operating loans, equipment leases, whether that be, you know, marketing support, accounting support. There's so many, you know, facets of a small ag business and like just are so time consuming and so monotonous. We can standardize that and we can offer it as a turnkey solution to be like the best co-pilot for a small ag business to thrive in the modern, the modern market. Awesome. Awesome. So what, talk a little bit more about fundraising in the, in the ag tech space. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough market out there right now. Um, you know, the, the capital markets in general are obviously in a, uh, a, a peculiar space right now. Um, and venture capital has been hit really hard, Agriculture is not a particularly sexy area for most venture capitalists to in, to invest in. So I think you're you're already sort of starting out with a, a very small opportunity uh, for money. Um, but you know, uh, there there is growing concern um, at a you know a, a climate environmental um, level for innovation um, in agriculture and agriculture technology. And so I think that we're starting to see the turning of the tides a little bit, and we're starting to see uh, money um, flowing in uh, to, to ag tech. Um, you know, ho- hopefully we can be the, the, the beneficiary of some of that. Um, but interestingly enough, we're also seeing it um, at the federal level a little bit too. I mean, we, we are seeing uh, a lot of grants come online that are trying to provide market access and infrastructure for, for small ag. I mean, I think one of the, you know, silver linings that came out of the pandemic was that, um, you know, we really started to recognize uh, more than ever. And I know that for, for people in ag, they've, they've known this for, since the, the dawn of time, but for, 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 for people outside of the industry, there was really a light shown on, you know, the consolidation and the corporatization of, of agriculture. And I think 
through that, there was a lot of pressure on policymakers and legislators to, you know, build programs to promote uh, diversified and distributed su- supply chains and and provide infrastructure for direct market access for small ag. So, you know, it's it's great to see that there's so many you know programs at the the state and uh, federal level that are trying to uh, help build infrastructure and programs. Um, but again, like uh, the the state of the capital markets is is tough right now, and it's almost like you know you you got to have like sort of this like uh, cockroach mentality. Like you will survive, you will survive. You know, even when it comes down to a nuclear holocaust, like you got to find a way to survive. And so um, we're you know we're 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 at that point right now where we're we're waiting for things to to improve um, and trying to focus like on building the the most value that we can for pr- producers and hopefully you know the market will eventually back us back us up when uh, the economy uh, starts to right a little bit and we'll be able to really scale this thing to to the level that we think it it, it can be I mean again like talk, going back to the beginning of this conversation there's 150,000 of the two million uh, small ag businesses in this country that are going direct to market today um, like our primary goal is to provide the best services uh, and infrastructure for those uh, that subset of producers. But again, like ultimately we hope that we have the resources to scale to like a much broader swath of, of, you know, small farm business in, in this country. Um, we don't think that it needs to just be 7% of the, of the, of the, industry that has direct to market access we think that it, that number should be much greater so our first you know order of business is to to build the best tools that we can for the people that are already participating in direct to market business but our second or uh, you know magnet order magnitude issue is to to help expand that access out to more producers so that you know your 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 buddy down the road who's a who's a, a grain farmer who's selling into you know a grain elevator today you know maybe has the alternative channels and paths to market you know that's our vision i like it i like it henry you've done a great job covering where you've come from and why you built farm share and what you guys are doing today so before we get out of here why don't you talk a little bit about farm share's vision for the future of farming yeah, um, just to sort of hone back in on on that last point, I mean, I think that there's a one. So, so Joel Joel Solitin, I think, has been pressed on this point about you know how scalable is regenerative agriculture, it, right? It will everybody just, everybody's get pressed. Yeah, on. everybody gets pressed on that point, and anybody from the, the from the media will press on that point. And I think that he has a really salient point and response there, which is, you know, regenerative agriculture is not scalable, but it's repeatable. Right. Yep. That, that is the truth. Like, I don't think that we move forward in terms of creating really scalable regenerative farms or ranches. It's not going to happen. It's not possible, but what we can do is we can provide the right incentive structures and we can provide the right access and distribution so that it's repeatable. Right. How many, how, like, like it, it is sad to me to recognize that like the average age of somebody in ag business today is like almost 70, right? Yeah, There's it's, n- just, it's done nothing but go up for 15 years. 
Exactly. Exactly. There's there's not incentive for new people to get into this. You're just people are just you know dropping off like flies. Um, so you know our vision is that we can put forth a platform that you know provides the access, the distribution, and the incentives to not only like maintain the the herd of of you know uh, you know ag businesses, small ag businesses that we have today. But also, you know, encourage more people to to get into this business. I mean, you know, crazy to me when I when I got into to you know this line of work to realize that, you know, a hundred years ago, more than twenty percent of the population was an ag producer in some capacity, and now that number is like one point two percent, right? I mean, it, we've just seen major major corporatization, and like it goes back to the point about shaking the hand that feeds you. How can you shake the hand that feeds you when only one point two percent of our population actually is actually producing something, right? And I think it's less structure. I think it's less probably because you take out all the seasonal and migrant workers. Yeah, and that number drops, and you know that number also takes into account people that own land that live in town and that have somebody else manage their land for them. So it also mm-hmm. takes into account those numbers, which I, I don't know. I don't think we actually know what the true number of people involved in full-time farming and ranching is, but I bet it's, I bet it's less than 1.2 million people in this country. Like yeah. It's, yeah. It's almost frightening of how few people actually produce the food, but then, but then there's a whole segment in there in the, in the food system that's not talked about. And that's all the jobs in the processing, you know, and not just the people in the beef plants and the, and the hog and chicken plants, but like the people in the strawberry plants, the people in the tomato plants, the people that, you know, package the damn peanuts. Nobody talks about those, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of these are jobs that used to be either on farm or in a small town, you know, back in the eighties, before all the consolidation and, and Mike Calicrate and I, we've done several great episodes on this um, and several other people. And I've talked about it. Greg Gunthorpe is another great one to talk about consolidation, especially on the hog side. But in the early eighties, I mean, even through the nineties, every plant in South, you know, every town in South central and Southwest Kansas, we had a locker. There was always a place to go get one, you know, get one taken apart and disassembled. And they all closed. They're all gone. Like I'd say 75, 80% of them that we had in the, in the early eighties in our small towns are gone. I mean, I used to be able to hit five lockers within an hour drive and now I've got, well, now I've got two. And the second one has just opened up in the last couple of months. And, you know, it's become more difficult over the last, over the last you know, 30 years, 40 years to get animals processed. There's fewer places available to do it. You know, as far as if you want, you know, get one or two animals done. So you do direct to consumer. It wasn't part of the plan from the beginning to kill all the small lockers. That's just what happened because, you know, you've got a guy that's, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, or even some of them last in the early two thousands they all aged out and nobody wanted to buy those businesses. And that's why they closed. They didn't get bought out. I mean, I'm sure they were doing good business up to late closed. I'm sure most of them, I think most of them closed because 
the guys just were just aging out and there were no young people coming up to replace them. And now here we are in 2023 where we've got hundreds, if not thousands of community scale meat plants that are trying to open up across the country. And they all have the exact same problem. They can't find cutters. Mm. They can't find people that'll work. Cause it's, it's not, it's not knowledge that we have anymore. It's not institutional knowledge that we have anymore. We took our skilled butchers, or we took our skilled butchers out of the small town plants, and we de-skilled that job. We de-skilled a job that it used to take years to master. We de-skilled it to the point where they can train somebody how to do it in a couple of days, because all they have to do is make this one specific cut on the carcass, right? As they're flying by six thousand a day. You know, so we de-skill that work. Well, it's a non-skilled worker. We can pay him less. We'll just pay him minimum wage. Well, now you're taking a good job out of a small town that needs jobs. And you're sending it to Dodge City or Garden City or the Texas Panhandle to a, a migrant that may or may not be illegal that that company can pay minimum wage to. And they're going to take those profits driven off of corn and soybean subsidies and they're going to export them offshore. I mean, national beef is owned by the Chinese or no, I'm sorry. National beef is actually owned by Marfrig, which is Brazilian. JBS Mm -hmm. is Brazilian and JBS is not just beef guys. They are pork and they're working in chicken too. Smithfield foods is a Chinese owned company. Okay, so let's keep this in mind when we're going to the grocery store, we're buying those labels, we're buying those products and you're paying, yeah, you might be paying less than you were going to shake the hand that feeds you, buying either on on farmshare.co or going to the farm and buying it direct yourself. Okay. Amen. There's a huge difference there. Brian, can I, can I, uh, offer a a promo to your audience to 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 go get free shipping on their on their first order on farm share and and order directly from uh from a small farm and shake the hand that feeds them that would be awesome um and and since we're kind of wrapping up here after we get off if if you'll set up a referral link i'll put that in the description so people can so people can use that link to sign up you don't need to give any money don't need to give any kickbacks on that it'd just be nice to track the traffic um, so if you guys are interested in farm share, click the link in the description, Henry's about ready to hook you up with a discount code. Um, and I'll make sure that one gets in the, gets in the description too. Awesome. Let's make it uh Brian. That's just the discount code. Apply that at, uh, at checkout and, uh, we'll get you free shipping on your first order. Can we change that to reboot? Well, that'll sure. Be- let's change it. Let's, let's change it to reboot. Okay, because that'll be consistent with all my, with everything else. Consistency is good, people feel. Yes. So uh, farmshare.co and coupon code reboot for free shipping. There you go. That's awesome. Henry, I appreciate that. For sure. Brian, thank you so much for having me on today, man. This has been a, a really enjoyable conversation. Yep, yep. I've had a lot of fun. Really appreciate, uh, really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for sharing about Farmshare. I'm I'm, I'm a lot better educated on it than I was uh, before. And um, I'm definitely going to check that out and I might even get signed up so I can get some of my freezer cleaned out. 
There you go. We'd love it. All right. Uh, links. Farmshare.co. Farmshare.co at farmshare.co on Instagram uh, and TikTok. Um, and uh, if you want to check out, you want to connect on LinkedIn, uh, Henry Arrowwood. All right. Very cool. I'll make sure we get all those links in the description. And uh, thanks again for your time today, Henry. Thank you, Brian. Be well. All right, gang. Go, go make something a week. See it. <laughs> Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.